0: I got to tell you, I'm a little starstruck because I have a guest on with me today. Um, I love his books. I love his commentary on social media. I love his writings. And uh, he's a he's a fellow Illinois kid, and I just absolutely love that. Uh, Dr. Wilfred Riley, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: So um, just tell us a little bit about... Um, you know, just who you are, where you work, and then I want to get into the books.
1: Well, I'm, as, as you said, I'm uh, Dr. Wilfred Riley, at least at this point in my life. I am an associate professor at Kentucky State University uh, down here in Frankfort, Kentucky, the state capital. I'm from uh, Northern Illinois. So I'm, Naperville, the city you mentioned is right across the river from mine. I'm, I went to high school at East Aurora, was born in Chicago, first on the south side, moved to the north side of that city. But I've done a range of things from street canvassing to trading floor work over the years. I'm currently an academic. In my private life, I enjoy basketball, beer, and Asian cooking.
0: I <laughs> love all those things. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you came out with a, a book that, oh gosh, I just kind of stumbled upon it and, uh, and I loved it. Um, Hate Crime Hoax. How, why did you decide to write that? And, and t- talk a little bit about that. I think everyone would be interested in the book.
1: Sure, so the inspiration for Hate Crime Hoax actually comes from being a Chicago guy who was in that grad student scene for a couple of years as I finished up my degree. Within that little world, there were four or five high profile hate crime cases taken up by the Tribune, some reprinted in the journal, so on. Um, So I mean, Derek Coquelin at the University of Chicago claimed that an entire hacker group, which he called the u Shy Electronic Army, had taken over his social media, threatened him, as I recall, with anal rape, disgusting stuff. You know, and so on down the line, I mean, at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, there were multiple nooses found scattered around the campus. Um, There were lists of death threats posted to all the Black students on campus. Uh, Velvet Rope Ultra Lounge, a well-known kind of hipster bisexual club in Chicago or Oak Park, technically one of the inner suburbs, was burnt to the ground. All these terrible slurs for gay people were written through it. And essentially, I followed these cases like everyone in that scene did. I had girlfriends that danced at Velvet Rope. That um, enjoyed the club, and essentially these all turned out to be fakes. The the fire was started by a guy who owed a lot of money to people apparently, which isn't always a good idea in Chicago nightlife. Um, but had to burn his own business down to collect about two hundred thousand from the insurance boys. But just a tawdry story. It was turned in by his buddy who'd just been picked up for drunk driving. I think with some drugs on him. Um, So at any rate, I I went through these, I found out that every one of them was a fake in the Wisconsin Parkside case, which I'd been following very seriously. I once applied for an academic job there. Um, What happened was that the person who actually did this, who was a black student activist, had spelled every name wrong on the list of black students on campus, except for her own. So the police were able to triangulate and track her down by looking at who had in, pleasant handwriting correctly spelled their name and found out in one intense interview, I'd imagine that this was the hoaxer. So when all this happened, when four or five of these cases fell apart, there was another case like this at Michigan Tech, where a white frat guy was falsely accused of saying he was going to shoot every black student on campus. It turned out that a campus rival had cut edited one of his tweets. He had said, I'm going to shoot everyone a smile following what I believe was a fight between white and black men. I'm going to shoot them all a smile that had been presented as a trench coat mafia style threat. I became curious how common this was, especially in the hot house environment that we often see on a lot of these college campuses of sort of constant persistent wokeness and guilt. Uh, Getting to the point, I found it was very common. Over a period of about five years, although some are outliers outside of this period, I was able to put together before even writing the book, Um, A list of 409 case studies of these open hate crime hoaxes, just among the the tiny minority of cases that were reported nationally. And that became the book. I speculate about why this happens. You know, it's reviewed by a lot of people from a law enforcement or a military perspective. How can you handle this? I get some solutions. But the core of the book is just the cases themselves. I mean, dozens upon dozens of these dramatic fake incidents reaching up to Yasmin Saweet and Jussie Smollett the leading racial conflict stories in the country were fakes.
0: And that's the thing. I, the thing that I noticed when I was reading the book was I would Google one of these cases and you never, it's really hard to find where uh, the, it was discovered as a hoax. Mostly what you get when you Google is the, you know, the, the actual story without any sort of retraction.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. One thing I want to emphasize here, when I say most of, many or most of the major recent cases of racial tension, that's not an exaggeration at all. I mean, you're talking about Jussie Smollett. You're talking about Covington Catholic, although that never reached criminal proportion. You're talking about Yasmin Saweed, the torn hijab, and the almost potential sexual assault on the New York Six train, just kind of savagery right in public. Erica Thomas, I mean, this congresswoman that alleged that she was verbally, if not physically, assaulted in this upscale grocery store. You know, Air Force Academy, one of our service academies, where they had to send a general to talk about race relations in the military. Turned out the entire thing was fake. It was maladjusted cadets. Kansas State, these horrible slurs written on cars. I mean, Drake University, Duke Lacrosse going back a little bit. Tawana Brawley ducking back further. I mean, probably the top 20 or 30 cases anyone could think of in this genre. Bubba Wallace, where he said they snuck into his garage and they planted nooses. know, KKK style stuff. It turned out that was just a rope to open the door. All of these cases either turned out to be open hoaxes or they just collapsed. And this is one of those things that's been totally rabbit hole to some extent. Like, I mean, my book has made Amazon bestseller list. I certainly don't think I'm being suppressed or anything like that. But you do notice that when, when one of these stories comes out, I mean, Bubba Wallace was the front page across the sporting, if not national media, for weeks you know, the, the idea that this is a hoax very often is printed on in agate type on page 14 of the leisure and pet cat section. Like in that one, at least you can find out what really happened. But how many of these college cases? And how many are just allowed to fade away where they say something like, you know, the MAGA-hatted attackers were never found and at least three or four I can think of? And you have to well, wonder, <laughs> they were never found because they never existed, probably. Exactly.
0: Well, and Bubba Wallace still claims that uh, it was a noose. And Jussie Smollett is now going through the court process, um, still saying that these guys are out there, right?
1: Well, I mean, I I trained as a lawyer. I mean, you're you're a cop. You have some background in the law. You never admit to committing a felony. I mean, and Bubba Wallace, I'm sure he didn't. But just like when when he says that, it's all this lawyer trained upper middle class stuff, right? Like when he says that, like it was definitely tied as a noose that was a boy scout for a little bit there are only so many ways to tie a rope you know so if you if you tie a rope with a classic slip knot and you pull the piece back up you have a noose the question is are is it a noose for example that's of a size you can put a human head in uh the Bubba Wallace noose turns out to be about three inches by four inches you know so no that nobody went in there and intentionally threatened him so on down the line that, that did not happen
0: now, you followed this up or you you wrote another book called uh, taboo, which again everyone should should read. What was the um, you know what was the reason you decided to sit down and write that after you know you this great success with the hate crime hoax what were you what were you hoping to do with taboo?
1: Well, I mean there they're obvious jokes I'm from the business side of writing like I had a two book deal with the publisher, but I mean in all in all seriousness, um, the reason I wrote taboo, One of the chapters in Hate Crime Hopes that I I never write as a throwaway, but that I didn't think was the most important, was my discussing what the narrative is behind a lot of this. And I coined the phrase CON, Continuing Oppression Narrative, where I, I made the point that a lot of people seem to be trying to redefine classic concepts like racism, class privilege, so on down the line, as the original versions of those things Even sexual assault in terms of how that's written into the policies on many college campuses, you know, as the original versions of these things, which are awful, fade, we seem to be changing a lot of these words so that a certain narrative can continue. And that narrative, if I had to define it in a sentence, is the idea that all of the problems in, say, minority or even working class communities are due to these vague forms of oppression. This, by the way, is simply not true. If you adjust for things like study time, those gaps disappear totally. A father in the home is the single variable. Fix that. Most black and poor white families go right back to normal. There's an obvious reason we saw income drop in the 70s and 80s when racism faded. But anyway, the continuing oppression narrative is a chapter of the book where I talk about how could anyone believe that MAGA-hatted goons are attacking semi-popular actors in downtown Chicago? Because it's this whole story that racism is everywhere. The old wars never ended. We all secretly hate each other. And so I wrote a book about that, where I look at probably the 10 most prominent claims made by the hard left, and also by the actual extreme crazy right, the alt-right, the the Nick Fuentes guys. But I ask, is any of this true? So I start with the left. Black Lives Matter. Are there thousands of Black people every year being killed by police? That's been claimed over and over and over again. I mean, Sharon Obiko claimed at least one a day, an innocent unarmed murder on Fox News primetime. Um, it turns out the actual number of unarmed black men shot by the police in a typical year is about 10, maybe maybe 20, last year it was 17. Um, the second chapter looks at, is there a great amount of interracial crime in the first place? We keep hearing about, you know, barbecue Becky and pool patrol Paula, and you know, sometimes the minority version of reverse, you know, that like kid, kid's beaten up in his Trump hat snatched. These, these stories come out every day. Uh, the short answer is no. If you look at crime in a typical year, if you go to the BJS in CBS, the Bureau of Justice Statistics National Crime Victimization Survey, there are about 20 million, I'd say real crimes in a year, not minor corporate offenses, but property at the level of carjacking or violent. When you talk about interracial crime in general, you're talking about 3% of crime. The person most likely to kill you is your ex-wife or your current husband. And I actually find that distinction to be kind of funny and that men are more likely to be dumb brutes in the day-to-day moment, whereas women might track you down following a failed marriage. You can make jokes about it, but the people most likely to kill you are those intimates. That's why Leo sometimes says cheche la femme, check the wife, check the intimates, um, followed by people in your neighborhood, gang rivals. IRC in general is a small percentage of crime. And what I said kind of glibly, but accurately there is, and it's 80% us. There are more whites, they have more money. So interracial crime in a typical year, is gonna be 70 to 90% black on white if we're talking about blacks versus whites as opposed to the reverse. So this chapter makes the point one, nobody should panic or move in an alt-right direction. This isn't very dangerous, but it's odd that it's the black left hyping it up. I mean, the, the simple numbers indicate this cuts the other way. And I go from there into other concepts like white privilege, which is almost entirely social class, if you conduct there, there's a study online, check your privilege, which was designed by I believe Yale graduate students that led the BuzzFeed website for months. If you do, you'll find your score correlates almost entirely with how much money your father and mother make. It has absolutely nothing to do with race. The the black-white gap with class adjusted for was like three points. So I mean, some Southside Chicago guy with the clover leaf tattooed on his neck is not magically privileged over, you know, Malia Obama. But So that's a chapter where I talk about how you can test these things, the basic tests for racism, privilege. Are these very prevalent in our society? No. Uh, I devote another chapter to what's called cultural appropriation. I move into the crazy right. And again, some of those claims, like diverse societies never work. Like Rome, I mean, as opposed to monoracial gems like Somalia, like you have to say things that are true. And a lot of these claims if you're not saying that there's a 2% negative impact of diversity, but instead big diverse countries don't work, you're just wrong. So I break down some of those points. I go into immigration, why it's so important to have a US national identity. And that's actually what I close with. Those are the last two chapters. But the point of the book is basically, these are the things that you're not supposed to discuss at cocktail parties. Now we're gonna discuss them. What percent of what we normally hear is true? It's incredibly low percentage point five. When it com- I made that number up, but when it comes to these issues, Black Lives Matter, uh, the, ex- the hyper-hard right, the modern feminist movement, trans activist movement, many of the things that are said by quote-unquote experts, like biological sex is a complicated and tricky business, or even race doesn't exist. I devote three or four pages to each of those. Many of those things are not true in any real standard sense of that word, and that's the point of the book, getting back to true.
0: What do you think law enforcement can do and law enforcement supporting citizens what can they do to fight this false narrative that american law enforcement is going out and daily murdering uh, unarmed black men you know what do you think we could do better
1: Um, I think that, I mean, to some extent, first of all, for active law enforcement officers where, I mean, the the chief or your individual chain of command, they're probably going to have some things to say about you speaking out in the mass media. To some extent, like, you know, watch the six of other people on your team and just keep doing your job and trust the citizenry to help you out. Um, I would never encourage people. This is something that's actually fairly important. I don't encourage people to get fired for engaging in these debates. I have friends that are in Chicago police, fire, so on, and it's very obvious what would happen to some extent if you were an outspoken you know, speaker of truth on this. Um, for, for someone who may be moving toward retirement in law enforcement or someone who's someone's wife or just an ordinary citizen who's really not running much risk is, you know, shift supervisor in the plant or whatever, a tenured teacher, just tell the truth. This is, I think, the one thing that's amazing, as you mentioned, I'm very active on Twitter and similar social media, And those platforms and the linked up platforms like SurveyMonkey allow you to anonymously survey very large groups of people. And I have a pretty diverse audience, obviously, in racial terms, but also the friends of a lot of people on the left that I've dated or hung out with or knew in Chicago, probably 40% liberal, 55% conservative, 5% nonsense. Um, But I mean, I've asked questions openly using SM or using Twitter, like, If I, if someone were to, I mean, no offense with this one, but this is one of the examples. If someone were to be a fully biologically male championship athlete and were to begin without surgery to declare themselves to be a woman wearing dresses and so on down the line, would you perceive them to be a woman? The question was asked with no hate. It was just would you or would you not? And 99.2% of people, as I recall, said, no, I wouldn't. I don't hate the person mental illness care is a real issue but that you're not a woman women have vaginas and so on down the line some of the women were very explicit about this uh what what they can do and so on but i mean then 0.8 percent of people said well yes that would be a woman and i think that very often those are the kind of patterns that actually exist in society i think that a lot of normal middle class taxpayers feel they can't say things because they'll be shouted down or everyone will disagree with them or something like this but in reality, almost everyone agrees with you, but is just feeling the same fear. So I encourage people to just talk. That's like the whole, the emperor has no clothes story. When you see some of this stuff, like people saying, well, the sexes don't exist, or people, we've, we've spent 20 years listening to our generals defend the Afghan army, you know, a proud trained force of fighting men. And I'm, I'm a pistol instructor for the NRA. I know how to use a weapon. I've watched them and I don't think they know how to use weapons all that well. So, I mean, it was, just, it was very apparent, this thing you couldn't say. And then the war came and, the, the war took a week. So when you see facts like this, speak up, and you'll find that the majority of people agree with you. That's not going to apply, interestingly, to actual racism or anything like that, because most people aren't bigots. But if you say something like, no, the, the police in our town are not killing hundreds of people per year, everyone is going to agree with you, because that's real information you can find online. So for, for those in any position that can speak out, do it. Say the truth. And I I think you'll find the vast majority of people agree with you.
0: So I have to ask you as a fellow former Chicagoan, um, what do you think is the answer to saving our city?
1: The thing is, this is all so simple. And I mean, it's it's obviously like we've both been leaders. It's not as it's not simple to get six million people to do it. But in terms of what communities need, whether those are Black communities or whether those are hardly privileged Caucasian communities like Irish, Italian, Norteño, Mexican, so on, Chicagoans, or whether those are people of any kind, race doesn't really matter in this this analysis, um, what makes groups of people stable is actually not a very tricky thing. Um, Two-parent families, for example, are are in fact the biggest predictor of how safe and stable a neighborhood is going to be. Uh, do you have a lot of two-parent families and do they own rather than rent? If you adjust for those things, the gaps that are often thought of as stereotyping certain white communities or the black community basically vanish. So, I mean, that's that's something that works. If you can't get to that, something that makes neighborhoods safe is having lots of sworn officers, lots of cops around. I mean, it really is, the Freakonomics talks about this, and it's a two left-wing authors, they obviously don't like admitting it, but what reduced crime about 45% between... 1993 and today i mean they throw out some wacky ideas abortion and so on and then they just say oh and by the way we doubled the size of the police forces across these cities and each increase perfectly matches the decreases in crime that we saw so i mean that that is another thing Uh, enforcing the law so it's not just a matter of how many officers you have it's whether they are the 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 thing i would keep track of if i were writing a major paper on this i I don't have two right now but it's it's an interesting topic crime rate increases It's more police stops, really, than the number of officers you have, but do you know that you'll get support from City Hall? If you see a guy standing on a street corner who might have a gun in his pocket, could be a phone, could be a beer bottle, do you stop him, put him up against a wall, risk confrontation with those around him? That is almost entirely based on support from the civilian infrastructure in the city. If you know that if that guy does have a gun and he shoots at you, but he misses, and then you shoot him and that's a fatal shoot, if that happens, you're going to go to jail, you're not going to do that. You're not going to make the stop. You're just going to drive on by. So, I mean, what, what could Chicago do? Uh, encourage healthy, normal behavior would be number one. Again, make all the nurses live in the city. That's how you get stable, middle-class, homeowning neighborhoods. Um, more cops. Support the cops. One thing I would say, listen to what actual people in those Black and Irish, et cetera, communities are saying. There tends to be this unwelcome in the hood group of activists from the local college that swarm all over every urban policy scene like this that I've ever seen. Um, And that is who I think was very involved in the Chicago Black Lives Matter and Antifa and so on demonstrations. This goes back to Occupy Chicago. Um, actual Chicagoans. I mean, there was a study recently that was printed in Newsweek that looked at people in the Windy and a couple other big cities, and they found that 81% of African Americans want more cops. They yes. want more. Yeah, they want more stable law enforcement. They'd preferred I mean, they'd prefer to some extent black officers or white guys from the same city. But the one in a 1000 risk of getting hit in the head with a, by a cop is viewed as much less serious than the one in one risk of getting shot. If there is active gang activity in your neighborhood. So the city should listen to what people are actually saying and should do basic things like enforce the law as opposed to pantomiming along with these stupid liberal ideas like make sure you wear your mask when you go to the riot like that that's not really going to do much.
0: So true. Doctor, I wish we had about two more hours to talk but tell people where can they find your books and where can they follow you on social media?
1: I'm extremely findable. If you Google Wilfred Riley, it's W-I-L-F-R-E-D-R-E-I-L-L-Y. You'll find my Twitter, Facebook, the websites I'm on, uh, so on down the line. My books were both at least uh, for a couple of days apiece national bestsellers on Amazon. So, I mean, you can find Hate Crime Hoax or Taboo. These these aren't my niche academic publications. You can find them just by clicking on the Amazon website and searching me. But I definitely encourage people to follow me, add me, uh, come talk to and argue with me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so very much for spending time with us. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Put the gun down!
1: Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of -of use-of-force incidents. A use-of-force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been
0: resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.